Greetings and welcome to Fresh Text. Fresh Text is a weekly podcast when a couple pastor scholars dig into the Word of God using a seasonally appropriate scripture passage drawn from the Revised Common Lectionary. We hope that it will be enjoyable and edifying for all, and especially equipping for pastors or teachers who are working on sermons or lessons in the upcoming weeks. I'm your host, John Drey. I teach systematic theology and spiritual formation for Wesley Seminary at Indiana Wesleyan University. My guest this week is Eric Barreto. Eric is a professor of New Testament at Princeton Theological Seminary, and he taught before that at uh, Luther Seminary in Minnesota, but now he's been at Princeton for a couple years. And we, in fact, went to seminary together at Princeton many years ago, though he was trained uh, in his doctoral work at Emory. So, and he is a Luke Acts expert, which is very exciting. So he has some writings out there on Luke and Acts and some great sermons uh, from uh, those texts as well. So it's really great to have him on this week when we are looking at Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. Acts 19, verses 1 through 7. Make sure to subscribe if you're not already, so you never miss an episode. And as you're listening, if you enjoy the show, hit the share button on your podcast player app of choice to pass this show along to others so they may benefit as well. Thanks for listening and enjoy this conversation with Eric. So our reading is Acts 19 verses 1 through 7. While Apollos was in Corinth, Paul passed through the interior regions and came to Ephesus, where he found some disciples. He said to them, did you receive the Holy Spirit when you became believers? They replied, no, we have not even heard that there is a Holy Spirit. And he said, into what then were you baptized? They answered, into John's baptism. Paul said, John baptized with the baptism of repentance telling the people to believe in the one who was to come after him, that is, in Jesus. On hearing this, they were baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. When Paul had laid his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came upon them, and they spoke in tongues and prophesied. Altogether, there were about 12 of them. The word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Let us pray. Father, we ask that your word and spirit would guide us as we attend to the letter and the spirit of this word. Uh, May this story and the events and thoughts and actions connected to it uh, stir something in us that we in turn can hand on uh, to those who are listening in. So Lord, send us afresh your word and your spirit that we might be Spirit-authorized bearers of the Word of God. We pray this in the name of your Son, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. All right. So, what do you want to talk about? What's oh, uh, what's grabbing your well, so your eye with this text? To start. Oh, yeah. like it's it's such a weird little story. I think that's the place to start. It's it's yeah. Um, it's such a few number of people. They're not named it's almost like this passing remark that, that Luke makes here in Acts 19. So I think just confronting how weird and kind of throwaway this little scene set seems to be, I think is an important place to start. It's just a weird little story and it raises up all sorts of questions for us about, 
about baptism, about repentance, about the Holy Spirit, which I think is maybe the the pl- best place for us to think of what this story is, is doing in this text. Um, I think that, yeah, I think that's the first place to go. It's like, how does this reflect larger theological themes that, that Luke has been grappling with uh, throughout the narrative? Yeah, it's just so, so weird. I mean, so to, weird. to have... That is an important place to start. Yeah, I mean, I, I mean I'll just... You mentioned already a couple of the the questions it raises and the the lack of specifics with characters. I mean, we hear about Apollos elsewhere, but even just his how he fits into this equation is also kind of interesting. Yeah, um, he's, uh, he's like a framing device. He's like, well, well Apollos yeah, is over there. Paul's doing this other thing. Yeah, and then this weird discussion of of John's baptism. I mean. You know, this is only, you know, as Luke's narrating this, he's he's locating this just a few decades after John's ministry. And of course, you know, like like just the th- I, this passage more than any other, this and maybe a few other random plates in, in the Gospel of John. It's sometimes bizarre to think about how is it that all these random diaspora Jews and even pagans are like, swearing allegiance to this like random Messiah pretender from Palestine. Like it's, it is yeah. kind of bizarre. Like, I mean, yeah, yeah. this chapter is bizarre, but actually all of early Christianity is kind of bizarre. Right. Yeah. And, and then this is actually a moment weirdly, like when, when the more attuned I am to the the strangeness of early Christianity, the more that actually this is the less strange thing. Cause this yeah. actually helps to remind us that yeah. actually maybe John the Baptist had a bunch of followers spread out all over the Mediterranean world too which we just and, don't have records of. And I'm not, I mean, you don't even have to posit that to be the case it's simply as a thought experiment. It helps to kind of realize people are kind of swearing allegiance and, and entering into the practices of great Jewish prophets back in the homeland. Right. Yeah, and you can even yeah. think now how immigrant communities establish important uh there's often celebration and discipleship before great figures back home. So I, I'm, I'm making, I'm thinking out loud now, but to just yeah. say like the more I do to, th- the more I let the bizarreness of this passage wash over me, the more it helps me kind of see just the whole strangeness of this early Christian movement and, right. and how you, how, how the followership of John the Baptist would be a really natural kind of halfway house to proper Pauline Christianity yeah. <laughs> as yeah, well, Luke would understand it. I don't know what you think of all that, but no, I think that the strangest of the story and the strangeness of, of early Christians, I think strikes me as an important thing for us to note, especially when so many of us find ourselves in context where Christianity is a dominant majority position, right? Like that, that there's a, a culture that supports the assumptions of Christianity, that it, that supports uh, in a lot of ways, uh, Christian worship. And so this context where those supports aren't there, mm-hmm. the, the strangeness of these stories, I think is, is an important aspect of this because if these stories don't seem strange to us, then I think we're missing a really important point about it. And I think too, <laughs> I think a good example of this is the parables, right? These parables that are offensive and strange to people, we know how they end. So they're a little too familiar. And I wonder if here is another one of these stories, not one that we often have read off probably in church, but that this strange little story confronts us with the strangeness and the negotiations that are going on in the early days of the church. Mm. So here, I think we can think back to the gospel of Luke and think about 
how Luke himself in the gospel narrates John and John's ministry. So, right. It's this yeah. really interesting interweaving of Jesus story and John's story. We start with Zechariah and Elizabeth. Right. But as the story oh, kind of goes of that. Okay. back and forth, right. Eventually it's Jesus who's lifted up in the end, and at the end of the narrative, we start with John, but we end with Jesus pretty dramatically. So that that's at least one thing. And Jesus lifts up John and all sorts of different ways along the way. But the other thing that's strange is, and this is, if I remember right, distinctive to the gospel of Luke, if you think back to Mark, Jesus goes and gets baptized by John. It's like two verses. It's, it's really, really fast. It's just, and John and Jesus was baptized by John and moves on. Matthew, this is the version where John says to Jesus. No, no, no. That's right. Yeah, right, right, right. right. I, yeah. I, you should be baptizing me. And Jesus says, we yeah, fulfill, all righteousness. fulfill all righteousness, right? <laughs> Luke, which does kind of downplay it, right? It kind yes. of is like, well, well, yeah, yeah, says, fulfill all righteousness. Yeah. Right. Well, it says that there's in Matthew's community, there's some wrestling with what it means for Jesus to be baptized yeah. by John. What does that mean? What is that? Well, how do we make sense of that? Luke is even more interesting because Luke describes all that's happening in John's ministry. Everybody's coming out to be baptized. The tax collectors are coming. The soldiers are coming. Everybody's coming. We get a bunch of his preaching in detail. Yes, yes, we don't absolutely. get in the others, right? And then John gets arrested. And only then does it say, and Jesus also was baptized in the Jordan. In this right. passive verb. And John's right. in prison by the time this happens. It's like, oh, by so, the way, he had been baptized before earlier by him. I mean... <laughs> Right. Well, I mean, like that's it's like a little flashback. Right? I assume he's not being baptized while John's in prison, although I guess it, but it's, it's striking, right? The yeah, choice yeah. that Luke makes to juxtapose John's imprisonment with this passive verb and John and Jesus was also baptized in the Jordan. Doesn't say by John, but just, just was. Baptized. Oh, really? Yeah. So, oh, I didn't I catch what that. You see there is the early church wrestling with John's oh, relationship. And, Jesus. and I think then that's also captured here in, in chapter 19, right? That, you do have these various strands of people following uh, these figures, whether it's John or, or Jesus. You get this in Paul's letters when, like, and Paul says, "You know, I didn't baptize you in the name of Paul or Paulus, or right that, that whole dispute. It was disputed from the very, very beginning, and yeah. I don't know, but that gives me comfort to know that. <laughs> yeah, right. Uh, our, our church fights are not new. Uh, to this, and I didn't even think of the Corinthian stuff about being baptized into the, with the kind of two millennia of Christian tradition, the thought of being baptized into the name That's of another teacher name. seems bizarre. Yeah. But when the whole Jesus thing just happened like a couple decades before, and the fact that you might also be being baptized into the baptism of John, all of a sudden, wow, that's a great connection. Am I remembering yeah. right that in Luke, there's a, in the teaching of John the Baptist, there's a, there's a thing about tunics or going the other mile or something that is almost identical to something in the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew, where like the weird thing is with Luke, like Luke almost brings John the Baptist closer to Jesus, Mm -hmm. but then also at the same time, it's the only time we know he's his cousin. Right. But also you're mentioning that he's also downplaying at the same time. So there's this kind of, it's this really complex negotiation, right? So you have that scene where Jesus is baptized and later on, John's disciples are going to come and ask Jesus and Luke, are you the one who is to come? Right. So number one, John isn't quite so sure about his cousin anymore, apparently. And then what does Jesus say? But to point to all the Elijah, Elisha stuff he's doing, the blind or seeing the liberate, all the stuff from Luke chapter four, he's, 
he's pointing back to it and saying, all these things are happening. Therefore you can know this. So I think it is, it's not either a rejection or a drawing closer. It's, it's a little bit of both. And I think the ambiguity continues with us into Acts 19 then as well. You're right. I just remembered. Oh, that scene. We're, we're, we're traipsing widely over Luke Acts, but we should because we're we actually not in a, we're, we, <laughs> we always should. And we've got a Luke Acts scholar here, fun fact for our listeners. And uh, we'll mention this later in the episode, but this is a kind of random little Acts passage. Uh, we're not in a series going through Acts or anything. I'll, I'll explain why later, but I want to glance at it. So, you know, if this can be a little like kind of Luke Acts week, that's okay by me. Maybe it's going to take me too long to find it. But in, I think it's in Matthew, Jesus straight up says, if you're willing to hear it, he is the Elijah who was to come in that story. But Luke doesn't say that. Luke no, doesn't I think Luke doesn't have Jesus say that where Jesus is more identified with Elijah yeah, the, the Elijah Luke and Elisha, version. like Luke re-embodies so much of Elijah and Elisha. Whereas like Matthew right, takes more of the token of, yeah. of like John the Baptist as, as Elijah and the Elijah figure of Malachi and I'm yeah. the the son of man coming down. So it's clear that even in the Gospels, if we didn't even have Acts, you would be able to speculate that there was ongoing debate yeah. about yeah. the status of John and even wonder if there are followers of John still running around. But then this passage sort of is this excellent confirmation to say, at least as far as Luke is concerned, this was a live, this was a live issue. It's not like we're just reading it. It wasn't just the question of John and Jesus is not just an issue of history in the past, but a Mm -hmm. kind of Mm -hmm. ongoing question. Yeah. Yeah, Live issue. And I think one of the places I'll want us to go eventually is to think about this passage less about what, this tells us about baptism or what tells us about John, but I think fundamentally what this tells us about God's activity in acts. So I think this is mm. all in the background and I think it's important for us to know, yeah, that these disputes in this wrestling is really old and um, probably had something to do with some of the live issues that Luke's own community was wrestling with um, and, and the audience I was wrestling with. But I want to make sure that at some point we come back to what this set tells us about God's activity, because I think that that may be the, the key here. All this stuff, I think, is super interesting. And I think enlightening for how we think about our own wrestling with theology uh, these days and the, the disputes that we have about that, the debates we have about that are, are not necessarily um, like that we've fallen away from some like uh, some, <laughs> <Pristine>. <laughs> moment when we all were on the same page and like things were better. No, I think one of the things that Acts narrates is that the early church was a disputed place. Yeah. Um, and that God acted in the midst of that. And perhaps even precisely because of that. Yeah. In and through all of that. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Can I, from the sublime to the mundane, can I just ask a mundane question? We'll, we'll come back to that theme. I, I, yeah. uh, I want to ask you, so I want to put a pin in that, I'll say, and say, t- tell me more about this, you mean by d- God's action in the book of Acts. Let's come back to that. But one little mundane question is just right out of the gate when it says it happened that while Apollos was at Corinth, who had come, who had been in Ephesus, right? So you get this swippity swap. So Apollos had been speaking boldly in Apollo in Ephesus in the previous chapter, and Priscilla and Aquila kind of mm-hmm. explained to him the way of God more accurately. So you've got a similar pattern of kind of, well, they're kind of there, but a little further they need to go now. 
And then he makes his way to Corinth. And then it says just this little random detail, Paul passed through the inland country or the upper, the highlands, different ways of translating that to come to Ephesus. And there he found some disciples. So I guess I have a lot of questions there, but specifically what's, what's this business about the geography here of, does that mean he didn't go over by boat, which would be a natural way to get oh, from interesting. Corinth, okay. and, Corinth and Ephesus are kind of straight across sure, from each other yeah. across the Aegean, yeah. right? So I guess he looped over. I hadn't even thought about that. Yeah. That that's it a is, long, that's a long that's a trip. journey. Yeah. Yeah. So I hadn't even thought a, about that. Yeah. I don't know what to make about that. I think. Um, and there's quite a few churches up there. Thessalonica, Philippi. Troas that he could, yeah. th- this, there could be a whole little mini trip here that we don't, we're not privy to. That's so interesting. Uh, so one of the things I wanted to say about this passage that might connect to this, cause I'm not sure what to make of that interior region thing. And I hope you have an idea. <laughs> I don't, I was with. just wondering. Oh, no. <laughs> but <clears throat> that I think one of the things that strikes me about this narrative that happens often in acts is how much of the actions happening off stage that we don't see it happening. Yes. Yes. So here like this, he passed through the interior regions, but what did he do there? How long did it take? It just doesn't tell us. How did these disciples make their way to Ephesus? How did John's ministry, John's proclamation, you know, after he's arrested, presumably make its way to, to Ephesus or these uh, Judean folks who've been exiled, who moved? I don't right. There's so much left unsaid. Another great example of this, I think, is at the end of the narrative when Paul makes his way finally to Rome in Acts 28. It turns out that there's a bunch of Christians already there. Yeah. How'd they get there? How did that happen? Because <laughs> if you're reading yeah. Acts, you might get the impression that like there's only Christians outside of Judea and Samaria because of Paul. Right, right, right. And like the sense is that no, 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 all this stuff is happening in the background and not narrated. Mm. There's a bigger story behind all this. And I think that's another thing that's that strikes me here is that these folks, these disciples of John have been in the background of the story the whole time but not in the background of God's care, the way of God bringing the preacher, bringing the good news mm. to them, right? That th- that's one place we can think we can see God's activity is that just because something isn't narrated doesn't mean that God isn't present there, that God isn't active there, that God isn't moving in ways that we may not be able to see, but, but God sees quite clearly. Oh, yeah. Yeah. Actually, now that you mention it, it, it directly links because this little story about Apollos in the previous verses towards the end of chapter 18, it specifically mentions that he only knew the baptism of John. So this theme's already kind of planted in a way, the whole story runs from 24 chapter 18, verse 24 you get, and he's from Alexandria. It says eloquent, competent in the scriptures, but he only knew the baptism of John, but he was accurate in his preaching about Jesus. And he was fervent in the spirit. Is that, Holy Spirit or not, there's some ambiguity in the the language there. And it, it sort of strikes me as you mentioned that there's so much other things going on in the background, the yeah. Christians in Rome and in other places. So it makes me sort of wonder if this almost works at the end, this little bit about Apollos. Yeah. It's kind of like one of the few examples where Luke does narrate how the yeah. gospel first made its way to Ephesus. Is that right? Wonder, and, and you yeah. can almost sort of say, like, there could be a little one-paragraph story written huh. of Christianity in a bunch of these places, yeah. you know? Yeah. And it's funny because it really does set up this – because the usual paradigm is Paul shows up to a town, works in the synagogue, and then when that 
gets messy, he often has some sort of more distinct group with more Gentiles in it, right? Isn't that kind of a common? Often, but then right? here, yeah. here, it's not that. It's the first. No, there's like, no synagogue. No, the, the, it's the he first stop. He, go, he goes after Apollos this. He goes was to in the, the syllabus. Yeah, in the synagogue. So yeah. Paulus kind of did the synagogue. He kind of did step one already. Yeah, I think, uh, you know, as you were talking, it made me think of when, when, um, when the disciples come back, I think after Luke said, after Jesus sets out the 72, mm. they come back and tell Jesus, you know, there's all these people preaching in your name, but they're not ah. with us. And Jesus is like, don't worry about them. Yeah. Like if they're, if, if they're not against you, they're for you. Right. So, and I, and I wonder if, if one of the things that's happening here, both with Apollos and with these unnamed disciples of John is the ways that God's spirit is moving in people's lives, even if they're not really with us, so to speak, right. They, they haven't received the Holy spirit in this way. They haven't been baptized in the name of Jesus. And yet God is still acting with and through them. So I wonder if there is a sense that again, that God's activity is bigger than even this, these Christian communities that are mm. something else is happening in the world that, yeah, that we can't often name or narrate, but it's there nonetheless. So that's one place my mind went. Um, the other mm. place uh, here and here, um, the other thing I'm struck by in this story is this question about baptism and repentance and, and how the Holy spirit all fits in. And I think Luke is not particularly interested in giving us a sense of what order these things should happen in. So what's mm. the relationship between repentance and baptism and the receiving of the spirit? I don't think Luke is particularly interested in, in order whatsoever. So I think about in Pentecost, for example, Peter is preaching, the people repent. No, they receive the Holy Spirit. People are speaking all sorts of different languages. Mm-hmm. They repent. They seek baptism. Uh, in the Cornelius story, or in the Ethiopian eunuch story, Philip proclaims the good news to the Ethiopian eunuch. The Ethiopian eunuch has, says, what is to prevent me Requests from being baptized? baptism, yeah. Well, it just says, what is to prevent me from being right, baptized? Right, right. The manuscripts add that the Ethiopian eunuch confesses. But indeed, verse 27, so verse 27 is not found in the best manuscripts. That's where the Ethiopian eunuch confesses. So in that story, there is the preaching of the gospel. There is the kind of what is prevented from being baptized and no indication, no, at least no narrated indication at the Ethiopian eunuch. Of repentance and faith. Yeah. (laughs) Right. It just happens. Uh, In the Cornelius story, Cornelius and all his household are gathered together Peter is in the middle of preaching when the Holy Spirit falls upon all who heard the word. So Cornelius is a good guy. We know like his prayers ascend before God. I don't know about the rest of his neighbors, but they all get the Holy Spirit. And then they're baptized without, again, a naming of of repentance. So I don't think Luke is interested in, in, in what order these things should happen in, but about the one who acts through these moments of repentance. Ah, the spirit of baptism, that it isn't about Paul and it isn't really about these 12 and it isn't about Apollos, but about the God who is acting behind all these moments. The Holy Spirit will fall wherever the Holy Spirit will choose to fall, whether it's on a bunch of pagans at Cornelius's house or here to these 12 who have been following John and are now baptized again, who repent and now receive the Holy Spirit in the same way that everyone did in Acts chapter 2. And it, it is about God's activity primarily, and not about how we do these things and in what order. But Acts is perhaps not particularly interested in giving us a sense of how to put together a perfect church or how to put together the <laughs> right liturgy, but about pointing to the God who acts 
where God chooses to act. God tends to act in a gracious way and in profoundly surprising ways, including in this little story. Oh man, that's good. That's a great place to stop, take a quick break and then come back and uh, keep going with it. And we're back. Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with Eric Barreto, and we're looking at Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. In its larger context, of course, but with a focus on this strange little story in Ephesus, this story of a kind of rebaptism of a sort. Um, the Baptist though, uh, got it right. Yeah, <laughs> or the true baptism. <laughs> Although in the name of Jesus, so you've got the, the apostolic <laughs> tradition that would say that it's in the name of Jesus. Not the name of the Father, Son, Holy Spirit, all these debates about that. Yeah. But, uh, and that is why, uh, so the lectionary and all its wisdom and or foolishness, uh, the first Sunday after Epiphany, which is what this episode is for, first Sunday after Epiphany is, is traditionally the day for remembering the baptism of Jesus. And on this particular year, this is the, the New Testament lesson alongside the story of uh, Jesus being baptized by John, which would be uh, the Mark the Mark version because it's year B in the lectionary. So we don't have to make, we already made some of those connections actually over those other texts. But I mean, it is really fascinating. There's all these components that you mentioned and I think helpfully kind of pushed against a tendency to want to look for a kind of correct order or sequence. Although most of the elements tend to be in place, although occasionally one is missing, which is itself important to note, although it fits to the fraught with background, there's always other things going on. Mm -hmm. So we can't, we can't presume that it wasn't there or presume that it was there. It's more, you just, we just don't know. And the emphasis is on the divine action, I think is what I'm hearing you say. Yep. Yep. And, and if we put the emphasis on the human action, then the sequence, the checklist really matters, but there are the components, right? It'd be, there'd be repentance, faith, the baptism, of the Holy spirit, or the, the filling of the Holy Spirit, different verbs that get used. Baptism into water. Although there's the word water doesn't appear here, although it's assumed it's John. Right? <laughs> but another, it doesn't say. Uh, laying on of hands. So you get a bunch of these pieces of the puzzle that keep showing up in different sequence is what I've heard yeah. you say. And, and right, right. the Cornelius story is, I think, a helpful one because it's almost like the opposite sequence in a weird way where if the Cornelius story is one of the Holy spirit kind of falling on the people earlier than we might expect, right. Given what we'd seen up so far here, it's a kind of the Holy spirit waiting right. until Paul's arrival, which again, it's not about Paul, yeah. but there must be some reason, at least in Luke's mind that this, this moment is crucial. This is when yeah, God had prepared something, but there's a kind of fullness. I don't know. What, what do you think? How, how do we take this notion that, I mean, it's a deep theological question. What, why does God wait to give them to the Holy Spirit until they have this, you know. This experience, this moment. Yeah, this and, baptism. And, and, and that they wait till Paul lays hands uh, on them, right? Um, yeah. That's a great Since question, clearly man. the Holy Spirit can descend on people. Without yeah. baptism, without, without a laying without hands. baptism, without any human hands, right? Of course, right? Like, of course, that, that can happen, right? Of course, the spirit can move in that way. So that here, it, I think Luke must imagine that this is some sort of divine choice, not yeah. a divine requirement, right? 
So I think, uh, you know, in chapter six, uh, verse six, so here in the NRSV, when Paul had laid his hands on them, it's not because Paul had laid his hands on them. It's not right. causative, but it is this divine response to these faithful actions being taken by these people, right? So uh, it's God responding in some significant way. So I think highlighting divine agency and is important here, even if the reason for in this case what seems like a delay but maybe it isn't a delay and like it's it's just the spirit shows up whenever the spirit shows up so if you expect the spirit to show up first and uh all of a sudden a crowd in jerusalem can can hear the gospel proclaimed in all these different languages or you're in this crowd of pagans at cornelius's house maybe part of it is disrupting our expectations that okay we've seen this happen before and therefore i know how god will will act um, and, and maybe our human tendency is to want to know something about order, about, uh, how we might organize this stuff when, when the spirit is far more disruptive than that. What we know from these stories is that God is ever faithful and God keeps God's promises. But maybe the consistency of God keeping God's promises is that God keeps God's promises in all these surprising ways, in all these ways mm-hmm. that we don't anticipate, that we don't ex- expect along the way. Um, and that these random believers, again, without names that show up before Paul here in, in Ephesus are a really good example of this. God has already been acting in their lives through the ministry of John. And there was something else that was happening in this moment as well. And, you know, again, we can might think about people like Cornelius and Ethiopian eunuch again, that it's not as if God was absent in their lives up until the moment that Peter shows up in Cornelius's house. Or that the Ethiopian eunuch has been bereft right. of God's presence until Philip shows up to him in the middle of nowhere. But that this is a moment where, where human faithfulness and divine promise come together. And the Holy Spirit's presence is not, uh, not, a, not so much in response to human faithfulness, but a visible, tangible way for God to say, not just I'm here, but I've been here all along. Uh, so it might be... The glossolalia and prophecy of six, which are likely the physical manifestation that the spirit came upon them. I mean, in some ways that's functioning confirmatory, right? It's confirming mm. something that was there yeah. rather than a cause and effect kind of relationship. Yeah. Just as if it's it, given the way you analyze the participles in verse six, Eric, if Nerds. baptism is not, yeah. <laughs> Nerd. <laughs> Well, well, I'll see your nerd. I'm going to raise you a geek and no, say, I was calling like, myself a nerd. And <laughs> it's the best part of this. So if job. the laying on of hands is not causative of the descent of the Holy spirit, then in some sense, we can even say that the descent of the Holy spirit isn't, it is, but it also isn't causative of <laughs> the tongue speaking and the prophecy. We're not looking for a sequence here. It's that those are signs Mm-hmm. Those are manifestations. Those are signals that something is happening here. Yeah. And the fact is, is there's a passage back in Acts 4 when the Holy Spirit falls upon a bunch of believers that we all knew already, quote, had the Holy Spirit back uh-huh. from chapter 2, yeah. right? So yeah. it's not – I don't think we always have to assume that there's always this like moment in time when now the Spirit is with you, right? especially because it isn't the Spirit – I mean, I don't want to get too technical here, but at least when I grew up, I remember preachers would say, I think there's a powerful insight here, although you don't want to overdo the prepositions, but they'd say, well, you have the spirit in you, 
well, all Christians have the spirit in you, but then you want to say like someone who you senses has an anointing. You want to say, you've got the Holy spirit on you. And I remember an old, it was the father of my current local church pastor. One time heard me preach and said that to me years ago. And it was very meaningful because I knew what he was up to. So he came up to me and he pointed and he said, you got the Holy spirit on you, brother. And and I was like, thank you. And I just was nice and said, thank you. You know, older man. And he said, no, I'm not just saying in you, we've all got them in us. He's on you, you know, and he was trying to say something important, you know, and we do that. We pray that the Holy Spirit would come upon us in a moment. So I I think that's a way to, again, I don't want to make a mountain out of a prepositional molehill, but to say that if your overall interpretation of Luke Acts is right, and I think it sounds right to me, then we wouldn't have to assume that the Holy Spirit coming upon them means the Holy Spirit wasn't at work prior to that. That would be bonkers, actually. Apollos was there. Priscilla and Aquila were there. There was all kinds of teaching. John was sent by the Spirit. Yeah, John was there. I mean, at least his ministry. In a sense. Yeah, in a sense, John is there. That's right. Yeah, the other place we might think about this is, again, always back to Cornelius, Acts chapter 10, when Peter and those who had come with him see that these pagans have now received the Holy Spirit just as they have, Peter says, what is to prevent them from being baptized? That <laughs> is this confirmation. Like, eight, and, yeah. you know, when I talk about Acts chapter 10, I get really frustrated with Peter because I just think, like, have you not been paying <laughs> attention? So when... When Acts at the beginning, when Jesus says, you're going to be my disciples to the ends of the earth. Like, who did you think you're going to find out there? But a bunch of dirty Gentiles. And, you know, the the songs at the beginning of the Gospel of Luke that Jesus is going to be a light to the Gentiles. Yeah. All the prophetic imagination that the Gentiles will worship together with Israel. Right. It's not a surprise that this would happen. But the reality is that we have this tendency, I think, to want to constrain, to possess, to hold the bounds of God's grace. And that when God's grace exceeds our sense of what is the proper way for, or the proper community, the proper people to be recipients of that grace, I think we get really uncomfortable with that reality. So this isn't about constraining what God might do, but allowing our imaginations to, to imagine what ways is God, is the spirit acting today that just because of, for whatever reason, we just can't imagine the way things the way that God is acting. So it is, I think about it, expanding our imaginations about the way that God might be acting in our world right now. Yeah. That's an exciting take because it's, it's very easy given the Priscilla Aquila sort of teaching moment to Apollos earlier to Mm -hmm. mistake this passage as primarily about correction, that these were believers that were kind of uh, incomplete or misled and good thing Paul came and straightened them out. Yeah, that's a very human. Ironically, though, that would sound very traditional and conservative way of orthodox way of interpreting the text in spirit. That's ironically a very humanistic reading because it's Mm. saying we human were not for Paul. Yeah, we human beings need to go and correct bad doctrine and correct bad practice. And when we correct it, then the, the floodgates of grace open up. Yeah, and I think you're really challenging that. I, I got to be honest. That's how I used to read this text. Not, I didn't pat myself on the back no, and no, try no. to act accordingly, but it, that's how it felt to me. Yeah. Um, and yeah, I'm re- you're really helping me re- kind of reverse my imagination and see this much more, a uh, much more akin to the Cornelius story or the yeah. Philippian eunuch story. This is just one more example yeah. of God's, sort of constant expanding. And Paul is kind of the symbol of the, the great 
teacher of God's expansion, but even Paul has to catch up oh. to God. Well, Paul Even needed Paul, a ton right? of correction, right? Yes. Paul, like, not just has the road to Damascus experience, but then goes away for a while and then comes back, right? Yes. So I think he, even he needed this massive correction along the way. One other place where I think this idea of correction, we might find a different way of thinking about what's happening here in 19 is, again, back to Acts 1.8, when Jesus says, and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, all Judea, Samaria, and to the ends of the earth. And I think I always assumed that meant that they were going to go and tell other people what Jesus had done for them. But bearing ah. witness is saying something about what God has done in our lives. But I think also bearing witness to the ways that God has already acted Ooh. in the world. Right? So it's not just what God has done for me, but to name the ways, you know, you know, to go to a new community and say, you know, God is acting here and here or to listen really. And guess carefully. what? That was Jesus. You didn't know yes. the name, but let me right? tell you the name of the one who was already and yeah. that maybe those people already know about Jesus, right? The the, the, the Christians in, yeah. in Rome, right? They already know about Jesus and that they're going to tell me something about Jesus that I need to wow. bear witness to elsewhere. Ooh. So I think it's kind of exploding that sense of witness, not as a, as opposed unidirectional. to unidirectional. Yeah. Unidirectional or unilateral, <laughs> right? Yeah, I've yeah, got all yeah. the information. I'm going to give it to you, but this much more bilateral sense that we're bearing oh, witness good. to yes, what God has done in our lives, but to also then bear witness to name the ways to hear the ways that God has acted in other people's lives as well. Yeah. It's so hard on our end of modern history to not read acts one, eight in a kind of colonialist trajectory, right? Where there's a center and everything's moving out from there. And what I'm hearing you say is to bear witness. Yes, there is a witness to the resurrection, to an event there and then. And what God has done in our lives. Yeah. Right. But at the same time, I like that bilateral that there's an exchange and a bearing witness and it's, and you know, cause so Paul in some ways on, on the one hand, Paul is bearing witness to a little more of the John story. Hey, if you really are a follower of John, you should become a follower of Jesus, right? You get, basically this is like the short version of like the whole gospel narratives, right? <laughs> you know, you, John you is pointing. So yeah. You get like John, a, we're, we're John right. pointing. Yeah. This is like a one verse version of, of like the whole first half of the gospel of John. Right. But at the same token, he's also testifying. Paul's now an eyewitness to what has already happened, yeah. which is that there's this burgeoning Christian community here under the ministry of Apollos and others, but also then getting to bear witness right in the moment of the new things that are happening that from Paul's point of view, didn't come through his hands, right. which is especially because sadly, it tends to be pastors and church leaders like our, you and I, who tend to read and exegete scriptures on behalf of the community. And it's really hard to not then read ourselves into Paul and our own vision of ourselves as the How agents awesome, and conduit. Yeah. <laughs> right. So we think about uh, Simon Magus, for example, right. And wanting, yeah. right. Being kind of converted over and then wanting to possess, yeah. to own the power that isn't a power to own or possess. Right, that where he goes wrong is not in seeing. Oh, wow! When when we pray over people, things happen. When people are baptized, things happen. It's not. That's not the mistake. The mistake is thinking that I can control that with my hands. Huh. I can purchase this. I can own it. I can possess it. And here I think about uh, Willie Jennings' new book, After Whiteness. Um, and one of the things he's arguing there is one of the places in theological education where we've gone astray is in this kind of colonizing white supremacist assumption about knowledge and what it's for, yeah. and that it's about mastery, possession, and control. 
Mm. That the the height of of education is to be a master over knowledge, to control that knowledge, to possess it in some significant way. And I think that we need to be liberated from that narrow way of mm-hmm. thinking about God's activity, but also our role as as leaders, as pastors, as scholars, as teachers. That we're not, you know, I, th- I think that way of thinking about witness earlier, right? Where I am, I am in possession of this insight that I need to give you might have deeper roots in a colonizing imagination than a gospel imagination, but one where we mm. imagine that God's spirit is free of our control is not something, uh, not someone that we hold and possess that we get to give away to whomever we choose, but a spirit that's wild and free and doing unexpected things all the time. Yeah, that's great. Well, I think we'd take a break there and come back and explore some sermon starters. Well, we're back. Uh, Welcome back to Fresh Text. I'm here with my guest, Eric Barreto, and we're looking at Acts chapter 19, verses 1 through 7. And uh, yeah, let's explore some sermon starters. Right before the the break, you you did mention Willie Jennings, and he also has a a commentary on Acts that I've not finished. I have not read this. This makes me want to go. It's upstairs, I think. Mandy's been reading it. I think it's on her stack of books by her bed. But uh I want to go check out what he has to say about this chapter. It'd be kind of interesting. You got it handy. I'm going to read, there, huh? I'm going to read a little bit while we talk. Yeah, do it. <laughs> Why not? I've been doing that the whole time. Uh, <laughs> looking things up, but yeah, where, uh, where would you want to go with a passage like this? Again, we can, we can talk about how it connects to other texts. Like I said, this is for baptism Sunday, but, but it's also just a standalone episode. Oh. Anybody who wants to preach on Acts 19 uh, might, be interested in, in this episode. So what would be your kind of angle? What would be your kind of way in? What would be your focus? I'm, I'm curious. Maybe you've, pre- maybe you've preached on this chapter before. I don't know. I mean, you are, I don't a, think I have, you're I, an ax guy. So it could be, it's entirely possible, but uh, I think one place to go, I think it's, it's a great time to think about baptism, right? I think that you have this, this story here. I think we're more familiar with the stories of of the John baptizing Jesus. That's the story we, that people have probably heard more than this story. So again, going back to where we started, how weird the story is to start there. And this disruptive story about baptism might give us a chance to take a step back and say something about huh. um, our own convictions about what's happening in that moment. Right. And different churches are going to have different theologies of baptism, whether it's a sacrament or ordinance, whatever. But I think in any, in any context, we, it might be a really good space to talk about the agents of baptism. And that's, again, God. Uh, right? so point back to God so that what's happening there is is less, you know, you know I think sometimes people feel like they, they should, you know, they should be baptized. They should get their kids baptized as if it's some sort of like social obligation. But to kind of hear, give people a renewed sense that baptism is about what God has done in our lives. Hmm. Um, and not that God has started acting in our lives the moment our head touches water, but that that that's a, that's a moment in which this physical sign confirming that God has been acting all along. Now, it didn't start with you. It didn't start with your baptism. 
Um, it started with um, your parents and your grandparents that maybe they were sharing the gospel with you. They were praying for you. They were thinking about you before that generations of people who've, who've come before you, a tradition mm. that has come before you um, faithful people who've shared the good news of Jesus for generations after generations. God has been acting for such a long time before you could even know to ask for God's grace. One of the things I, I, I so I taught at a Lutheran seminary for seven years and one of the gifts of that time was this refrain that I would often hear is remember your baptism. And this was in, in many of these Lutheran traditions, there was a lot of infant baptism happening, right? So remember a baptism that you literally cannot remember, right? Because you do not have, when you were, you know, just a week old or a month old or two months old, you cannot remember that moment. So what are you remembering? You're remembering that before you knew, before you could remember, before you could ask, before you could say something, God has already been acting upon your lives. And then that God then will show up in unexpected ways. So these disciples of John probably thought they had it all set. They thought they were all good to go until this surprise encounter with Paul shifted their trajectories. And it wasn't, you're doing the wrong thing and now you're doing the right thing but that God all along was drawing you into this moment, a moment that usually involves this deeply interpersonal and relational moment that Paul has with these unnamed disciples. So I think that's one direction I might start is to talk about God's agency and God's activity and the way that, that God moves in and also before baptism. Oh man, that's that stuff about agency is really exciting, especially because just a little detail, he chooses to use the passive voice in verse five. So on hearing this, yeah. they were baptized yeah. At the into the name in of the, name the Lord, Lord Jesus. Jesus right? It, it decenters Paul's agency. Yeah. Bingo. Yeah. Bingo. And it's not Paul baptized them in the name of the Lord Jesus. And, it, and here it's not clear and even, that, and Luke, it, that Luke is aware of Pauline letters. Like there's a big scholarly dispute about that. Yeah. But if Luke did know them, like maybe that whole controversy about Apollos being baptized in the name of other people, is that here in the background? Or at least the sense that a recognition that baptism is not something that we possess. Yeah, First Corinthians, right? Baptism. I'm glad I didn't baptize. Well, okay, Stephanos. Yeah. But, you know, these, but, but not, not any, but beyond but not that. very many. <laughs> but it wouldn't be a given. Of course, he traveled with companions. Why would he baptize all 12? It would be really fitting if a few mm. people gathered together. Yeah. Right. And and then the genitive absolute in verse six also decenters his agency slightly. I mean, only slightly, you know, to say, and the laying on of hands, them of Paul's hands, right? It's kind of, it's like a, it's a nice kind of, it's his hands. So Paul's yeah. mentioned, but the subject of that sentence is the Holy Spirit, mm-hmm. not Paul. Paul is placed in a, in a genitive absolute to kind of create put the emphasis onto the Holy Spirit's action, right? That's really hard to pull off in English, right? I mean, right. you'd almost. It's almost like know, Paul having laid hands on them. Th- yeah, that would be Holy awkward, right? but yeah. this would be an example. This is a little tip for listeners. If you're doing any translational work, you know, I, I don't always, I usually just use the standard translation, but occasionally yeah. like if I'm going to make a point out of something, I sometimes will want to, do a little, a little fix like that, you know, on the fly. If I want to emphasize where the agency is. And I Um, think that so often as a side note, we can do some of that translational work in ways that are more accessible to people. I think um, 
I think sometimes we we come up a little short when we say in the Greek it says and not explain. Oh, it no, I just do, it. do I it. I just say, translate it. <laughs> right, well, in a weird say, way. Look, notice what's happening here. Paul is yes. not the agent, right? That's yeah, yeah, the thing. You, you can actually see that in, yeah. you can see that in the English. You can see that in the English translation. Yeah, that's right. I think yeah. you're dead right. So we use the knowledge of the, that that's a, a application of your point at the end of the second segment there. Don't act like we have the knowledge that we're dispensing, yeah. but to sort of offer, Hey, you can I, see it. It's right here in yes. front of you. I tell you just my read Greek it carefully. students yeah. that it's, it's so easy for us to communicate accidentally. When we say in the Greek, it says, that unless yeah. you went to seminary like I did and studied Greek, you can't actually read the Bible yeah, as well exactly. as I can. That's the and that's not something we want to communicate, right? That these yeah. translations are really good. Yeah, uh, I mean, I want to change them all the time, but they're really good. <laughs> so anyway, that, that's a side note. That's a side note. But it's an important side note here to so you so it's often I'll find yeah my own study of the original will then get me to just see oh it was right there in the English all along. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm, I just mm-hmm. I just was passing over it. Yeah, you know, and so to use the translation, although if you have the option to select a different translation that is more fitting to that, yeah, having laid his hands upon him, the Holy Spirit came upon them, yeah, and then they begin speaking in tongues and prophesying. Mm-hmm. Right, so it's this this agency is it's, and you really do have the three agents of baptism all in play here. There is mm-hmm. the the church doing the baptizing mm-hmm. in its representatives that that has a role to play, but it's been de-emphasized. Uh-huh. You have the human agent of those being baptized, that it's about their empowerment to proclaim the gospel, not just yeah. to be a recipient of grace, but to be proclaimers. Uh, but most of all, the agency of God in the power of the Spirit freely coming upon them, yeah. uh, who we know can come before, during, after baptism and was, as far as we know, already at work. I like that. That agency emphasis is fun and it really does link up with some of the the language of the text. And it goes back to then why it's so important that they be baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Hmm. It's not because we didn't do the correct It's not method. a formula. Yeah, right. It's actually to say this is the center of God's agency is the risen Lord Jesus. He is the one filled with the spirit passing it on to us. And all the way back then, you're right, this really could illuminate playing this off of the baptism narratives in the Gospels could be really fun. Because what does Paul say in verse 4? Well, John baptized the baptism of repentance, telling them to believe in the one who is to come, Jesus, as if to say, repentance is our action, and that's important, and that's great. I'm glad you guys have repented. But have you leaned into the baptism that is God's work, which Mm -hmm. ironically— Ironically, this looks like a rebaptism story, but it's actually like a perfect example of why you wouldn't need to rebaptize a Lutheran who is baptized as a child. That you would present first the option of, well, okay, go ahead and repent now. That, that's like, ironically to, to engage in too much rebaptism is actually to revert to John's baptism <laughs> away from baptism into, yeah, into yeah, Jesus' yeah. name. Ironically. It's yeah. almost the opposite of this story is to say, okay, yeah, you had the grace of the church granted to you in baptism, but now you've repented. So now I got to get baptized. It's like, yeah. now well, we got to do it. Eric's right. right. When, yeah. I, I think maybe that's the second preaching direction we might go in here. Is, yeah, it's it, a different. It, again, it's, it's about divine agency, but I think also it's a, I can imagine lots of folks sitting in our congregations who have like, have imagined their lives as a before and an after, right? So yeah, um, 
like how many Facebook posts have I seen where it's usually about like working out and weight loss, right? Like a before and right. after, like, oh, that's, that's good. who I used to be and that's who I am now. Right. Um, and I wonder if, if that kind of thinking as, as we, a lot of us have bought into that and what this text might help us reimagine that to think not of a before mm-hmm. and an after, but to think about how this moment of baptism, this encounter with the spirit allows us then to look back on those moments before that and not see that as a disconnect, but as a continuity of God's activity. That yeah. God has been acting with us and moving with us even before we knew to look for baptism, to, to look for repentance. Um, and even if we in some ways get part of the picture, what matters more is that, that God has come with us, that God has given us a glimpse into that part of the picture. And that we're always only seeing a part of the picture. It's not like these 12 disciples, these 12 followers of Jesus now, like done and done. We get it now. We've been baptized in the right way. And the, the work of, of faith is now done. we're in but like, yeah, now we're in. No, I think it's, it's a, it's a midpoint in their story. Not, not the end, nor it's beginning either. Maybe the, maybe for a lot of us, baptism, uh, whether it's, you know, when we're infants or, or, or later in life, it's, it's not the beginning of the journey. It's the midpoint of a really long story that precedes us for a long time and is going to yeah. go well after us as well. I'm really struck that this would be, although strange at first, because it's a apparent rebaptism story, but that would actually make it fun, is to really, and actually either of these preaching directions you've mentioned could lead to a kind of remembering of your baptism sort of serve Mm -hmm. a little bit of a remembering baptism activity at the end of the sermon. I I know that my own preaching has been enhanced when I consciously think a lot, actually even to start, because I'm, I'm a sort of, I'm a pretty linear deductive kind of person by nature. So then I kind of think through my ideas, I develop the sermon illustrations, all that. And then I think, oh yeah. And then something at the end, but to like work it backwards to kind of start with What's yeah. the five or 10 minute, that's not even sermon. What's the five or 10 minute experience yeah. that I want the people to have at the end? Okay. What kind of teaching will lead up to that best? Right. Right. And yeah. my, I write, my sermons are like, they're half as interesting and like 10 times more effective when I do that. Mm-hmm. Does that make sense? Like yeah. they don't, yeah, they totally. don't stimulate me. They're not as intellectually stimulating for me when I do it that way. But that's not the point. <laughs> the yeah. point is, yeah, it's not about right? you, <laughs> right? So, the, not so about the, me. They're they're just so much more impacting yeah. because then I cut all the fat. I don't need to say anything except yeah. what's going to help us get to that experience. Yeah. And honestly, you know, this is going to drop right around New Year, so mm. it's kind of a you know, it's for the first Sunday after after Epiphany. So it's the beginning of January. It's it's actually a really good time for baptism remembrance to kind of yeah. stop and say. Right. I'm about to, let me look back and see how God was at work, even when I didn't get it all, right. even when my doctrine and practice were inferior. Yeah. So, right. He well, was working and now yeah, I've and I learned wonder, new things and I'm not done yet either. Right. And I wonder if this new year is going to feel particularly. Yes. Uh, <laughs> resonant. Right. Yes. So this is 2020 worst year ever, but it's not right. Yeah. But, all right. It feels it's, like it's it right a, now. It's a contender. <laughs> and I wonder if, if what we might need, right. So we've got this, this really hopeful future in a lot of ways, right. So the, these vaccines, I think look like it's going to make a massive difference. So, so people yeah. might be having their eyes toward that future, but it might be worth at the beginning of a new year for people to look back on a year that could have been filled with a job loss for people, 
Yeah. They might've lost somebody in their family. They might've just been stressed when, when they think of their, their spouse or their kid has COVID. Yeah. So, you, so you went out and bought a pulse oximeter to not like cut off the edge of those griefs. Uh, just do a grief, thank, thank goodness worry. it's gone kind of. Right. Yeah. But to say, how can we see, not that God makes it all go away, but that, that, that God was present with us in those moments. God didn't desert us uh, in right. those moments grief and those moments of loss and not any kind of simplistic, see everything worked out. Okay. But something like far truer, far, far more raw and far, far truer to the, to the moment in which we are right now, where, you know, between the pandemic and economic crisis and a political crisis and uh, renewed calls for racial justice, we just have to be honest about what we're facing and part of that honesty is naming the ways that God has been with us. Mm-hmm. Um, and that we can do that in a way that doesn't just take away people's grief or it cuts away from under their feet, their sense that the world has gone wrong and that we can still say God has been with us. And we sometimes need help figuring out, learning, naming, feeling how God has been with us. I think that's really good, man. Well, it ministered to me, man, hearing you talk about this. Text. Oh, this is fun. Pitch some sermon ideas. Appreciate the time you gave. Thanks Anytime. for the hour, Eric. Yeah, of course. And as always, thanks to Todd and Eric for their production work. I can't imagine doing this without them. Thanks to Tom Adamson for donating the theme music. And thanks to you all listeners uh, for dialing in and getting the word out about the show. And with that, we say have a good preach and a great week. Bye-bye. <laughs>